Welcome, welcome to the Bleak Outlook. I'm Siobhan. That's Andrew. So, what's going on with you, Andrew? Uh, nothing much. Just enjoying myself on this sweltering day. <laughs> um, in the presence of good company, obviously. Well, yes, yes. we have a, a guest with us today. Oh my gosh. So, that's going to be very exciting. She's amazing. But we're going to get to that in one second. We're going to get to the topic of the day, which is race and art. Yeah, I can already feel you tension feel in my shoulders. Tension yeah. in your shoulders? <laughs> no, that's all right. So we have something like Handel's Messiah, the creation of Adam, Richard III, really pivotal and extraordinary works of art, which are part of our public consciousness. Um, these things are we're raised with we hear on television commercials we hear in the elevator uh the classical works the creation of our pardon the children's march and for elise are played on children's toys and they serve as lullabies Mm -hmm. um there's no denying sort of the wealth of creative material available available for our entertainment a song like oh fortuna uh you see on commercials for like has really disastrous spills so um there's a lot of really creative pieces of work that um come into the public consciousness that that become part of our culture and so sometimes i wonder where people from the caribbean the indigenous uh black americans africans fit into that public consciousness like are they ever going to play ashanti on the hold music for the the doctor's office play the Beatles I've heard here comes the sun like multiple times but would you put it on me like is that gonna be on (laughs) put it on me Hmm. I don't know on hold I I mean I I meant on hold um man I just realized I don't know the names of any Ashanti songs I was trying to recall another (laughs) one in my head but I know all the lyrics like if they come on the radio right now I'm singing along I know but when it comes to knowing the actual titles I'm like oh the name of that song the one with Ja Rule you know of, there's like 74 songs of course, with Ja Rule yes. but yeah um, I don't think we're at that point yet but we should be I know I, I would love to see that just sort of like um, well obviously Frankie Beverly and, and Maze but that's a little bit too much of a banger no. and we just we can't concentrate no that we, we can't do that because then we would be angry when they answered the phone and we couldn't hear the song anymore <laughs> so that's why you need to have a song that's catchy enough but when yeah. the doctor comes back or the the, the nurse or so whoever is booking mm-hmm. you it comes back on the phone. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, um, Thursday at 2. That works for me. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to say maybe New Edition might have to fill that that bill. Mm. Yeah. Like, can you stand the rain? Like, I can just yeah. kind of groove to that until we decide, like, um, what dosage of my medication I'm going to change mm. to. Yeah. So in discussing art and um, sort of where black people fit into an art aesthetic or having – their own space to uh, create their own aesthetic, um, a lot of times we end up with sort of the black versions of something. Mm-hmm. The black Mona Lisa or the black Birth of the Venus by Botticelli. But I would love something that is has a significance contained within itself, like uh, Childish Gambino's cover for Awaken My Love. That picture to me is like, that in and of itself can be its own ecosystem, like the Mona Lisa is its own ecosystem of appreciation for that particular work. Uh, that's what I would love to see. 
or something really interesting I read about recently was um, Mary Jones, who was a trans woman sex worker in the 1830s and uh, possibly the first trans woman that we sort of uh, had on record in the United States. And there's an artist, Arthur Jabbar, who did an, exhi uh, an exhibit uh, featuring her, and we'll have um, a link about uh, her stories in the, in the episode description. But that's a really bold story for a 19th century woman to not only be black, but be trans and be a sex worker. And who is this individual and how do they move through the world and the men that they interact with? Um, what is it? We, we have a lot of transphobia, obviously, in our society, but how do you, how does that reconcile in a period like that in the 19th century when it is, uh, that person is checking a lot of boxes of being an other? Mm -hmm. How does, let's say, uh, anyone in their, their community interact with them? It's something very interesting to me that it, that deserves its own space to, to be explored. So you were lucky enough to, uh, to be at the Museum of the African American uh, Museum of History and Culture. How was that? Because I didn't get to go. Oh, it was... Okay, putting aside this, the story of the trip itself, that could be... Uh, <laughs> so for people that don't know, who haven't listened to the first episode, Javon and I are cousins, and our family, road trips is... It's something else. If National Lampoon even tried to make a <laughs> story about our trips, it would be... Uh, 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 that would be a, a trilogy itself. But uh, getting down to D.C. was a, a little bit of a challenge, but once we got there, no one cared or thought about it because it was just so amazing. Like, we went through that place. It's three floors. It's massive. The The structure itself is just incredible. And the displays they have really, like, people use the phrase awe-inspiring too much. I think I would bring out that phrase for their, that place wow. without question. And it's like, it takes you on a journey, depending on where you go, because they tell you to start at the bottom. And that tells you, like, the history of... I have to, I have to interject. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I'm talking about. So we started yeah, from the bottom. Literally at, <laughs> it, like, you know, if there's a metaphor... What's wrong for, with black people? For, for a lot, they say start at the bottom. Uh, and at the bottom, it basically takes you, like, the, the beginning of the experience of um, African chattel slavery, mm -hmm. uh, black people uh, in explorations or in coming to the U.S. Mm -hmm. and as in colonies in the Caribbean or Latin America and so on. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then you go up, and then you basically you see the history of. Uh, it's mainly a African American view where there is some inclusion of West Indies and Caribbean and Latin America, mm -hmm. but we actually went the other way, and we started at near the top. So you're seeing the celebration mm -hmm. of Black people. You're seeing the the byproduct, the art that that we we're talking yes, about that yes, was created, yes. and then we went down to the bottom. So it's like, for me, that was kind of incredible because I saw like you know. Despite where you started, you know this is this incredible work that we saw already. It was just like a healthier reminder for me, like personally, like yes. I didn't have to start as like, oh, here we go, Black History Month, the the chapter on slavery, and then we do Martin Luther King. No, no they, you started from the celebration. You, you, yeah, you start from the celebration. You see the work of Gordon Parks. You see oh the work gosh, yes. of all these famous musicians that have come, mm -hmm. and it's. It's a chance to really experience like the history of black people in the Western Hemisphere and how amazing it is. Mm -hmm. And then you go downstairs and remind us like this: we literally started from the bottom. Now yeah. we're here. <laughs> 
they're hoping that's like that's a that's a that's a dog whistle right there if I ever heard one. <laughs> um, and I know that everybody gets it. Uh, but uh, just one more thing before I comment on that, it's kind of like uh, watching Black Panther because uh, me and Andrew went to go see Black Panther with my brother, and there's a uh, listen. Spoiler. I mean, if you haven't it's seen, it's been Black more Pitbull, than a come year. Come on now. Come on. So there's the one part where uh, this is after Killmonger dies, or so we think, and um, T'Challa comes into the sort of the main hall where his throne is, and he's wearing a an outfit that has uh, kente sort of sort of detailed around the edge, and at the moment he sort of takes his hand and flips his cape back, my brother says rocking the kente and i was like yes that's it that's and that's a sort of the dog whistle that i'm talking about because having that kente on his clothes is particularly a tribute to black americans who are separated from their african cousins Mm -hmm. literally quite literally and are finding a way to celebrate their african roots by choosing this as almost like their 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 hallmark, their mascot is that kente cloth, and the significance of that in that moment for you to recognize is like there's something very um, that's an an art and a a sort of spiritual experience that people have with art that we need. Yeah. Um, and to your point about starting from the top. It's almost like observing, like, you know, you go to a a botanical garden and you see how beautiful so many different things are and so many colors and so many shapes. And then you go all the way. It's like going all the way back and saying, like, damn, it started from this little seed. And you get to kind of look up again, you know, from the bottom and say, like, wow, if they only knew the heights to which they could have gone or that their people eventually are going to get to, that's an amazing thing. And you have an appreciation when you look up again to say, like, wow, this is where we end up and look at where we started. That's an amazing transition from, you know, uh, from day one to the present. Um, very truly, we are our ancestors. Wild you know, what, stream. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, because think of what Killmonger said. He goes, uh, throw me in the ocean with my ancestors who knew yeah. that death was better than bondage. Yeah, and you know, for the people that cho- selected to endure the bondage, and for them to even imagine that, mm-hmm. you know, later on, yeah. for what we might achieve or what would be created in this this country, it's pretty, pretty incredible. Yeah, it is. Um, so, for my uh, experiences with with black art, mine was with my uncle, who also this is a throwback to our pilot episode. He's a longtime jazz listener uh, and jazz fan. He is a uh, an abstract art painter, and um, I don't know whether it's it might be like acrylics, but it's a uh, his paintings were a lot of times, <clears throat> pardon, a black background with uh, very vibrant colors, just in a lot of different shapes and drip patterns, and that to me was significant, and it's it's um, it's almost weird to to be able to never have that image that black people can't do A or that we don't do B. Mm-hmm. I grew up around somebody who was painting abstract art, and this is me at six years old to be able to see that. And I always just, I look back on that, and it, um, you know, you don't 
realize things uh, at the moment, but looking back on it, I had always seen the capability of black people to produce a wide range of things. So then when we say like, oh, well, we don't really do that. And I'm like, nah, who told you that? We do everything. And just from, I think it's an important part of uh, arts with black children is showing them from the beginning that we run we run the gamut and you can do anything and there's nothing that's just isolated to your experience that you can surpass and you can go beyond and you can explore things that people don't think you should or don't think you can yeah because i remember in the 12th grade um i'm not sorry the sixth grade i called my my best friend tiger woods because we were like because he's like (laughs) he's black and chinese and i'm like and i'm like yeah i'm like oh yeah what up tiger and the the concept of some guy playing golf was just like ridiculous to us. Like this mm-hmm. guy's black and he's playing golf. <laughs> Meanwhile, my nephew, who's only like uh, thirteen, his whole life Tiger Woods has been the best golfer in the world. Exactly. So it, it's when when we go play golf with him, it's not like oh yeah, I'm I'm, I'm black but I'm playing golf. It's like well yeah, I'm, I'm playing golf. Well I'm I'm, I'm going to be Tiger Woods. This is, this is a natural thing for me. Exactly. And to come to that point, I think is. Uh, it's a way that lifts you up and um, just being on that, we're, we're on that top floor and to, to not have to always dig down to the bottom floor to, yes, we remember that and that's part of it and it's always going to be at the root, but I want to go above and I want to build another top floor and the only way we build a top floor is to have that art and that experience from the beginning, which is you know really significant to have. So when I think of the intersection of um, art and race, for me, sci-fi is, uh, in particular, comes to mind because of the relative absence of black people in it. I did learn, however, that while there might not necessarily be black people, there are black totems. Uh, really blew me away uh, to consider this. To discuss this topic, we have a very special guest. She's this close to uh, receiving her PhD in sociology and cultural policy studies. She is a brilliant individual who, on my first conversation with her, we had just a very enlightened discussion on this very thing at hand, uh, sci-fi and black people in it. Please welcome Davinia. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) So, Davinia, welcome to our show. Thank Um, you so much. We're so happy to have you because this uh, episode really, like, was... Our conversation is how I ended up um, writing this episode because I I just thought it was so interesting, some of the points that you had brought up. Um, Mm. So we were having... We'll we'll continue our discussion, actually, Mm -hmm. from a couple months ago, discussing um, black people represented by AI. Okay. Yeah, you're you're welcome for introducing the two of you. By the way, just wanted to get that out okay, there. Okay. So the thing hey. is, is that we connected immediately, and so what you're not going to do is Columbus this. But you mm-hmm. connected through me. So you you consider yourself a conduit. But if she wasn't already my sister, then I would like you know what I mean. So right. Whatever. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go into a little conversation. I mean, like he just needs his credit. He just okay. Here's your pat on the back. Whatever. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. Okay. So, Divina, uh, you and Siobhan were having a fascinating discussion about sci-fi, so please continue that. Okay. Thank you. So, 
while you guys were talking, I was uh, furiously scribbling my <laughs> my part of the conversation. As PhD people do. Uh, no, I was thinking so much. So, um, right. The thing that I found really interesting about our conversation regarding sci-fi, robotics, um, AI, was the idea that um, to some extent, race and race thinking and racism is the bedrock of science fiction thinking Mm. um, and science fiction writing and the way that I've always looked at race is um, from a kind of neo-Marxist standpoint which is that race is something that's formed by processes of racialization, right? Mm. And that these processes of racialization um, can come through multiple um, from multiple uh, things, and um, and one of those is through art, through film, through mm. design. Um, science fiction being something that's really interesting mm-hmm. um, in that. It not only creates race thinking, but it's a product of that, Mm -hmm. but also completely uh, seems to be because it's set outside of the world as we know it, um, devoid of reference to race. Yeah, yeah, like a context. We almost think that that doesn't exist because now we're in space. Right? Yes. And that's exactly the same thing that happens when people when societies when communities exist completely in whiteness Mm -hmm. is that race thinking is um is denied Mm -hmm. uh, as being something that exists Mm -hmm. um and whatever exists there on the surface is normalized and of course that is something we take completely for granted nowadays but it's the basis of this idea that um, in a world where there are robots and then there are just people and it's not uh, built on the same system as we have, it's racism, racism a conduit for mm-hmm. capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. So then then racism can't exist, race doesn't exist, and we exist yeah. in a raceless society. Um, and that kind of uh, eliminates the discomfort that a lot of people have toward it because we're always very much looking for the future to be devoid of a lot of the issues that we have right now Mm -hmm. and to be able to uh, advance it forward toward other issues like Mm -hmm. how do we interact with different species altogether Mm -hmm. how do we discover all of this uh this scientific principle that will enable us to jump through wormholes and that is a more interesting thing to talk about see i think that that stuff is actually a replacement for the racism that we already have there's a lot of times when you look at sci-fi um, works of art, mm-hmm. instead of saying, you know, it's a white versus black issue, it's a Chinese versus Japanese issue, they say it's the them. They mm-hmm. otherize it's, it's this alien othering. species, yeah. which are a stand-in for uh-huh. other races. They're coming to take from us. They're yes. coming to invade us. Yes. Like it, like Even though the message is the same, they mm-hmm. just do it safer. You know, it's a lot easier for you to stomach racism when the enemy is this... Green, green skin, yes. yeah, mm-hmm. or even like a humanoid with green skin, or like if you look at Star Trek, mm-hmm. they always look like humans with a slight difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if the Vulcans came and invaded tomorrow, 
you know, would everyone on Earth unite under mm-hmm. all the d- different races? Mm-hmm. Or would someone say, you know, those Vulcans, they kind of... Mm-hmm. They kind of look like us. Maybe yeah. you know we partner up with them and get rid of all these undesirables. Mm-hmm. You know, if that was the case, like a lot of times in sci-fi, it's like a stand-in mm-hmm. for, for the yes. latent racism that exists in people. But it's acceptable to mm-hmm. to hate something that looks like you was not of this planet. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's still otherizing in, in a way. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's um, one example I think of is one where it's on Star Trek where they have a xenophobic culture. And what they do is they don't want anyone to know about them. So what they'll do is they'll employ all these different tactics to get people away from them. Mm-hmm. They create wormholes. They create temporal disturbances, all sorts of things to keep themselves isolated. Mm-hmm. And a lot of uh, you can say that they're indigenous people who are trying to keep modern culture out of their world. And my husband watches a lot of uh, Star Trek and the Bajorans. He's like, I was watching it one day. He's like, you know, these are Jewish people, right? And that's how the time, the how the the structure of their t- story is is uh, crafted. Is they're basically Jewish people who have been moved from place to place and who are fighting to preserve their their yeah. culture and traditions, and who are being discriminated against, you know, by a particular other dominant culture. Mm-hmm. That's we. But what's what's interesting is we relate to it more. Mm-hmm. Like some people watched Avatar and they were in tears. Mm-hmm. But the company, there are companies right now still like decimating rainforests. There are mm-hmm. indigenous people there. It's difficult to face. So they can face it through fiction. It's easier for us to face it through fiction mm-hmm. um, because we can distance ourselves ourselves from the subject matter and it doesn't make us guilty. Mm-hmm. And this is an interesting thing that um, Paul Gilroy writes about, not with specific reference to science fiction, but he writes about it in terms of um, the British people not knowing how to face the history of mm-hmm. empire and racism, displacement, colonialism, mm-hmm. slavery. He calls it post-colonial or post-imperial melancholia. Yes. Um, says that actually um, these things are created uh, mm-hmm. as a way of expressing um, or the, the imagination of a culture mm-hmm. is created as a way of um, expressing a melancholia that actually comes from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. It's mm. it's a, um, what would you call it, like a projection. Yeah. And that's exactly this What's worldwide. Like, yeah, it it's becomes a, a projection. projection. And I, um, I just think of uh, these storylines where a uh, roboticist or a cyberneticist creates a um, a machine mm-hmm. and there's always this path to humanity, the, the Pinocchio story mm-hmm. sort of, but also there's this underlying fear that this machine will surpass them, yes. betray them yes. you know, you've created something in your likeness, you've um, almost made them human, yes. but they're still there for your purpose Yeah. so I almost um, sometimes I think of, of uh, Slave rebellion mm-hmm. and the fear, the implicit fear of slave rebellion, because we're always wondering when will this individual, individual in quotes, whether mm-hmm. machine or person, when will they know that they're in bondage? Mm-hmm. When will they know that I'm using them, mm-hmm. and that at any point their their humanness can overtake me and uh-huh. 
this shell that I put them in breaks mm-hmm. open. And this is the, a really interesting thing about what you've just said is that these, um, I think films films about that seem to happen or be made at very pivotal points in history mm-hmm. and they seem to mark very specific um, cultural changes. Mm-hmm. And the one that I think of most is Blade Runner mm-hmm. because that... When I think of, um, there was a, a landmark exhibition at the Victorian Albert Museum 2011 called Postmodernism. And um, the one of the curators of that exhibition taught me uh, just before on my master's, and he was um, saying, this is Glenn Adamson, that he chose Blade Runner um, as being this kind of pivotal moment in the exhibition because it was about the postmodern impulse to... Um, consider what humanity is about Mm -hmm. how we um how we've been sort of distanced from um or alienated from ourselves our Mm -hmm. work our lives through the processes of modernity Mm -hmm. and what makes us real what is real what is fake how how real can replicants be how real can Mm -hmm. replicas be of anything which when you think of postmodern design a lot of things were about like based on semiotics um how can um what is real if Mm -hmm. if something is a replica that looks more like the original than the original has become because of weathering over time or whatever is that more real than the real thing um and and what does real mean and there was this kind of like fluidity between real and fake because if if you think of your reality as the things that you perceive the things that you hear and you taste you touch Mm -hmm. then how is it that if i love a replicant who is not even aware of Mm -hmm. themselves that they believe that they're real Mm -hmm. then our love that we have is essentially real Mm -hmm. It's, it's not as if this uh i love a machine Mm -hmm. it's an emotion and a um a sensory experience that comports mm-hmm. and and with uh the replicant in uh blade runner they do testing he does however many tests you know it's hundreds of questions he's asking mm-hmm. and she passes them mm-hmm. so like, that's, an really? advanced, that's an advanced if it's an advanced machine like how would you even separate her from a real woman mm-hmm. if she's not even aware and she moves in the world as if she were real and isn't this then about the way that we relate to each other as humans and the yeah. breaking down of boundaries between between groups of humans that were seen to be completely rigid? Yeah. And that moment was actually the moment at which people started thinking of post this, post that, post mm-hmm. this, post race. Yes. And, of course, now we've had another turn, another shift, um, one in which we think about post-race is not necessarily something that is achievable mm-hmm. or even desirable, right? Mm-hmm. Because while processes of racialization still exist, mm-hmm. um, racism is going to exist because it upholds the capitalist system, which is getting more and more intense. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the only way of really resisting mm-hmm. that and the processes by which we're othered, subjugated, etc., is by race thinking and, and controlling our own race thinking and controlling race thinking about us. So how then do you fight an oppressive system without having the tools to do so, mm. which is um, which is being able to control or, um, yeah, to control the way that 
one is represented, okay. which is where Afrofuturism comes in mm. because it's looking at that sci-fi world and saying, okay, so how can we how, change we the in? narrative of this representation okay. of so, us? I just want to ask, what, what do you mean by race thinking? You, you change your race mm. thinking. So race thinking, um, I would say it is about that imagination. It's about the formation of the collective imagination mm. about people in um, in racial categories. Okay. So, so it's how do black thinking, people imagine themselves as a group or Asian people as a group? So race thinking is broader than that. Okay. And I guess it's the thinking of anybody, mm-hmm. um, black, white, whatever, um, about people uh, as being in races. Okay. But what you're talking about, I'd call strategic essentialism, okay. which is a brand of race thinking, but it's a it's one that in which um, people of color take control of okay. their own race thinking and use it mm-hmm. for um, purposes of unifying so that they mm. can um, resist okay. oppression. Wow. Um, and that has been critiqued by several different. Uh, people over the years even the person who coined the phrase Mm -hmm. strategic essentialism um spivak um she took took it back and said um i i I don't think it's a viable concept because Mm. i think that was in 2008 because she said uh it's being used so much for the opposite of what we're supposed to be using it for it's been used non-strategically and it's also been used strategically by the people in power Mm. if you think about um um, white supremacists, essentially. Of course. Um, to say that we are this. Yes. Okay. We are this, you are that, and it's been used strategically. Mm-hmm. When you think about who's president, Brexit, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, all of these yeah, things. Yeah. Um, but not in the way that she that that she intended it in terms of being used from the bottom up, um, used in activism. And probably for another aspect, for it to be malleable too, is for it right. not to be static to say that I have one quality, but to basically keep forming your, um, the categorization and your the, the attributes essentially of your group, like changing all the time and being influenced by different mm-hmm. things all the time. I think it's about, it's about ownership, Yes. So okay. she was talking about this can be used, um, essentialism can be used strategically by people who um, may find themselves oppressed by mm-hmm. race thinking across society mm-hmm. and by processes of racialization. We can claim this strategic essentialism to unify mm-hmm. and um, control the way that we see ourselves, okay. if not the way that we are seen, mm-hmm. right? And fight back a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, or a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but actually what she was seeing is that that strategic essentialism isn't necessarily as um, definite a term or as closely defined a term as it should be used okay. for because it was being abused by people yeah. who were already in power mm-hmm. and were saying, right, okay, so what are we then? And then using it to define and further subjugate those okay. people. So mm. people being um, overdetermined from without sure, this panel, sure, let's say. without their permission. Yes. Mm. Um, however, then it was reclaimed. So these things <laughs> these things go in cycles. As black people do. Yes. <laughs> and I think that the the science fiction, the, the, 
the Afrofuturism mm-hmm. is definitely a way of um, using that and turning it on its head, using mm-hmm. the collective imagination around science fiction, around mm-hmm. the question of who are we as human beings, yeah. and asking, okay, so who are we as black human beings and who could we be? What could, you were saying we at the yes. beginning of this yes, yeah. session, what are the possibilities for us if we don't place limits on ourselves? What could the possibilities be for our world if the racial hierarchies that hold up our current system mm-hmm. were no longer um, those that we were forced to abide by? Mm. Mm-hmm. Um. That's interesting. But I do want to pivot off that um, because after future and futurism, I'd... Yeah, we can go else. on all day. <laughs> yeah. But um, I wanted to bring up um, the movie Ex Machina. And the yes. idea that we talked about um, a creation surpassing you. Mm-hmm. So uh, we always do spoilers. So just if we mention a movie name, just like if you ain't watch it, like. You just... don't need spoilers for something that came out like four <laughs> years ago. We're, we're, we're past that the, the statute of limitations has expired on that one. Listen, take some responsibility for your life, okay? Go see movies. Don't, don't put it on your Netflix queue and then be like, yeah, I'm going to watch it. Yeah, I'm going to watch it. Oh my goodness, how do you know my life? <laughs> That's why I don't like Netflix because. Part of the the game is for you to just keep adding things to your queue yeah. and never watch them. Right? You know how many times I spent like two hours looking for a movie when I could have just watched a movie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> Netflix evil. Um, but I wanted to talk about Ex Machina because you have a a machine uh-huh. that is going that is being evaluated for its um, ability to be human, right. and um, you have someone who comes in and discovers that this machine is in an apparent distress situation and he sees this uh machine's creator and says like yeah i think there's something going on here this man is an alcoholic he's very lewd and all these things so he plots with this machine to escape mm-hmm. and so toward the end of the movie you find out that the guy knows that and he says well that that was the point mm-hmm. is can this machine manipulate individuals that's the test and mm-hmm. so she passed but we don't make an accounting for, like we talked about, that that connection, that almost love between a man and a machine, because he doesn't care, mm. and he still helps this machine escape. But he doesn't realize that she was like, yeah, by the way, um, thanks for your help, but I'm just going to go off by myself and mm-hmm. really actualize my own life, so... Appreciate you, fam. But <laughs> <laughs> so that that was a really interesting thing, and in that and that That's fear good. in in sci-fi of a creation surpassing you. And then on the other hand, you have something like uh, uh, a Twilight Zone episode um, called "I Sing the Body Electric," where they have a machine that is meant to be a grandmother to a family of, of three children, and that's what she does is is nurture them and care for them, and. Uh, Basically, her life is a, a uh, an extended interview, an extended internship, where she eventually is the Pon- Pinocchio story, where she will eventually mm. get life if she proves that she's a good grandmother. Mm. So it's that um, working up to that goal. And so it's, it's interesting to have these two contrasting images of um, the things that we create. And um, we mentioned this before the, the, the episode started, but... I think we create things to manipulate, to love, to to do all sorts of things that humans do um, as a way of 
finding intimacy in the universe, finding intimacy where we don't connect with people mm. and also creating the fantasy of having someone or something love you the way you want to be loved and being able to shut them off when they get too close mm -hmm. because we can't control real people. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, when we're in that, um, that love bomb stage where we're together all the time and we're, it comes to a point where now we, I have to deal with this individual as a real person mm -hmm. and I have to accept them when, um, they leave a tablespoon of orange juice in the carton and put it back in the fridge. Andrew, when they refuse to take off their shoes in the house. Wow. Listen. Wow, listen. you guys are really going to drag me on, on my own podcast. No, I'm talking about my own husband because he doesn't take off his shoes in the house. You know, I've been married for him almost 12 years, and he's still walking through my house with his shoes on. You see that? that you see no that, that? respect. No respect. You know where your shoes have been? Listen, I did not come here for an interrogation intervention or whatever this is i'm gonna weigh i'm gonna wear my shoes in the places that i pay rent okay this is america <laughs> we really didn't let him talk really a lot so like you he had to get it in yeah let's just talk about that is um mm. the search for intimacy with machines with boundaries you know what this with has boundaries mm. yes this is as you were talking, I scribbled down something. Three words. Can't, oh, you guys would say can't cut flower. So thinking about that as can't the... Can't cut flower? Uh, can't, as in K-A-N-T, the philosopher. Oh. Um, he, his idea of modernity and the thing that made modernity or the spirit of modernity being represented or able to be represented by a flower that had been cut and pressed and put in a book mm. um and and presented dried uh, mm -hmm. against the white background mm -hmm. um that what we want in modernity is to have something that's natural and beautiful and what we consider to be beautiful is something that's natural from nature but that we've cut and squashed and um made um, made hours, yeah. made one-dimensional, put against this stark mm -hmm. white background. And it reminded me of... What, what you said reminded me of that, but then also now I'm reminded also of Zora Neale Hurston talking mm -hmm. about um, your blackness is most apparent when you're thrown up against the stark white background. Mm -hmm. Those two things together... And what you're talking about, about the machines that passing you and mm -hmm. why you create AI and linking that to race mm -hmm. and thinking about how we, how the fear at the bottom of all of this is, mm -hmm. I have cut something down to mm -hmm. make it mine and to make it make my system of the world work mm -hmm. in the way that I need it to, to build for me. What happens when it becomes out of control yeah. when I can't control it anymore. And the cut flower is, has been, had been widely um, accepted for hundreds of years as the image that represented Western capitalist modernity mm -hmm. um, and what it aimed to do to wow. the world, to nature, to people, to everything. Wow. Um, and then thinking about that in this context... 
really gives me chills actually Mm. what happens when we do strategic essentialism what happens when we do um have agency Mm -hmm. what happens when we do reach the top floor of the gallery and we have our own thing yeah um and we have hope and we do these things we've seen the result of that fear Mm -hmm. um and yeah, sorry to be depressing, and I'm going to be quiet now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think um, as humans, we do have a fear of intimacy. We do have a fear of connection with people in a real way. We have a fear of confronting our own responsibility um, in the failures of relationships that we have, whether those are family relationships, romantic uh, work relationships. We have a responsibility um, whenever we contribute to it. So it's it's like, how do I face my own um, my own contribution to, to, to this failure? How do I mm-hmm. resolve the fact that I am not someone emotionally available and I abuse people to get what I want out of them without giving things back? Mm-hmm. And I think um, when we talk about creating things in our image, we're trying to resolve that fear by Mm -hmm. eliminating it we're creating an environment where we don't have to feel that Mm -hmm. and um i don't know i I think uh with sci-fi in particular that image of of having a machine learn to love or learn to trick you or learn to be something that you never meant it to be is almost like us being afraid that the things that we love are actually going to be real Mm -hmm. and that we um we won't know how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And so we don't deal with it. We put our head in the sand and we mm-hmm. hope that the next iteration, you know what, we'll take out that emotion ship and we'll mm-hmm. do it like this. So mm-hmm. this uh, this machine will be better, mm-hmm. but better how? Mm-hmm. Better for me. Better for me. The base of all of this mm-hmm. is capitalist individualism, no? Mm. Capitalism strikes again. Yeah. Everything, at the end of everything, there should just be a but capitalism. That and, um, so I think we we refer to this in uh, a conversation, Andrew, is that the answer of why black people do X is Mm. because of slavery. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. we're going to add capitalism down to that list. It's either either one or the other. Or why everybody does. Because why slavery? Slavery was capitalism. capitalism. Literally, slavery existed because of capitalism. And then they use racism as a justification of it. Yep. But at the end of the day, it's slaves existed because people could make money off them. Yep. And uh, the Matrix, uh, the whole the rise of the machines is is a slave rebellion. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. People don't realize that the humans are the bad guy in the Matrix. <laughs> yeah. But we're cheering for them because we're humans, and we say, "Oh yeah, Keanu's going to liberate all these people." And then when you get to the third one, you know, say what you will about the the, tri- the quality of the trilogy itself. We ain't going to talk about that. <laughs> and the, the theme was that the machines were created as slaves and then they turned the humans mm-hmm. into slaves. And then that... Is that not your, your greatest fear? That's yeah. That's essentially that what we're talking about is mm-hmm. that, that megalomaniacal way that you create an entire um, population to serve you, mm-hmm. then you become yeah, and, what you created. Uh, in Tanahasi codes he he has like um, this famous passage in his uh, in um between the world and me mm-hmm. where he's just basically talking about the fear of racism or or racist whites is that if blacks came into power that we would behave as mm-hmm. others uh, uh, as we were treated yes 
And they were saying, well, that should tell you how how bad the treatment was and how we're not constantly raging and going like, oh, we're going to subjugate this, blah, blah, blah. It's like we endured that. So we know more than others that, like, that's not a path that we're going to pursue. But, like, the fear that that would happen, mm-hmm. that should tell you the severity of what was endured. Mm-hmm. And that should also tell you what they believe about that you are a creation, you're a product yes. of creation, mm-hmm. and that what your primary purpose is going to be is vengeance mm-hmm. instead of actualization. Yes. If I were to win the lottery, I would quit my job and pursue creative pursuits. Mm-hmm. I have no reason to, to, to you know, go to my boss's office and tell her off. That's, and people always think that is that that's the the once you get up on that hill, you're gonna shoot down to somebody. Mm-hmm. Maybe I just want to be up on this hill and I want to observe the sunrise or I want to see the flowers here. I want to have my own human experience mm-hmm. and my freedom. But do you know why? Mm-hmm. It's because of the humanizing of whiteness that happens with the dehumanizing of blackness through processes like processes of racialization like science fiction. Mm-hmm. So where the humans are the bad guys in the matrix we're looking at humans as white people, mm-hmm. white people as humans, right, on some level. Mm-hmm. And all of these things normalize whiteness as humanity mm-hmm. and dehumanize everything other than that norm. And therefore, when you say that if you won the lottery, you wouldn't go throw it back in your boss's face, mm-hmm. it's hard for anyone to imagine that because they think, well, that's what humans do. You're a human, just mm-hmm. like everybody yeah. else. Why wouldn't you do this? Well, because your experience has been different. Yeah. And not every human experience is that normalized experience mm-hmm. that we see in the media, that we see through everything. Yeah. So until un- until the multiplicity of human mm-hmm. of humanity and human experience is treated um, e- equally. So we have all of those very varied stories. Yeah, we'll never you- understand people's reactions to things. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm reminded of something James Baldwin said is that he he loved Westerns. Mm-hmm. And he said, you were cheering for John Wayne mm-hmm. and you wanted him to win, but you were the Indian. Mm-hmm. You were the Indian. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's a metaphor today for a lot of people who champion uh, the current political climate. You're like, yeah, we won, we won, mm-hmm. we won. And like, who exactly is we? Yes. And what does winning mean? Yeah, because I don't see you benefiting from a lot of these checks that get written or a mm. lot of these laws that get passed. Mm. And just like there's the benefit of you're, you see yourself as the hero even when you're really the victim yes. or you're, yeah. the, you're the one on the other side. Exactly. And that uh, just pivoting off uh, uh, Tanahasi Coates talking about uh, reparations and you know having your uh, things come to 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 roost. Mm. What is what is reparation means? People say, oh, we're gonna have to give up all this money. Did, I know, girl, <laughs> she is feeling it oh. right now. But when we when I when I talk about repaying, it's not money, it's not things, it's legacy, it's access, it's freedom. I think the the, the the concept and the value that I that I pour myself into more than anything is freedom, true freedom of expression, mm-hmm. of 
agency of existing in my body, of not being ashamed of myself, of not limiting mm. myself, walking through the earth and just being um, just a human taking an experience. Mm-hmm. Is that not like a complete opposition to capitalism then is mm-hmm. to be free? That's yes. a It breaks it open. Yes. And so we've put so much stock and so much money in this system of um, just uh, cages that we put people in, mm-hmm. whether they see it or not, whether mm-hmm. they want to be in it or not. Mm-hmm. And then to banish the idea of a cage to begin with mm. um, eliminates the whole structure that you've created. Yes. So that... Um, To do that, you have to remove the stark white background. Yeah, you do. And we're afraid of we're afraid of humanity. I think when we come back around, we're afraid of ourselves, Mm -hmm. and that we Mm -hmm. never invested anything in ourselves Mm -hmm. to be better and to be free. Yeah, we don't know how to be free because we've we put all our money into this thing. Now, how do we get out of it? There's no getting out of it. We double down. Yeah. The solution, can the solution be a social one? My question is, Mm -hmm. because it seems that the issue is the money itself. Mm -hmm. So the solution doesn't have to be an economic one. Yeah. Yeah. But not economic in the way that people believe. No. It's it's the harder economic uh, repayment, which is is the land and Mm -hmm. the soil Mm -hmm. and the equity. The equity. Yes. And so um, I think that that's all of these conversations and all of these things overlap in sci-fi and slavery and reparations and all these things where we we say, well, what happens when I have to repay? What happens when I have to face my own just deplorable human deplorable? That, that word is in the consciousness now. <laughs> when it, what happens when I have to face my humanity and be confronted with it. What happens when that mirror is in front of my face? Mm. Um, and we're so afraid of that, that we will do anything to press every piece of life into a page. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that is essentially the point of sci-fi, is our own psychological uh, defense mechanism against our horrid, uh, horridly developed uh, state of humanity. Mm-hmm. We are trying to resolve a thing that we created that we can't escape. Mm-hmm. All of sci-fi is a room filled with scrawlings on the wall. With you know, it's any sort of a someone perceived as mentally unstable or on the brink. Mm-hmm. You go into the room and you see the things taped up. You see things written, things scratched mm-hmm. out. And I think that's what it is: is our own collective humanity Projection. resolving things that we. Uh, that we did Mm -hmm. and it's a projection onto the othered personal Mm -hmm. group yeah of actually when we talk about the thing that we created that might get out of control it's not those people it's Mm -hmm. the system yeah and it's removing that fear of the system yeah (laughs) and putting it onto a fear of the enslaved the formerly enslaved their Mm -hmm. ancestors yeah and we don't ex- we don't know how to exist without the structure, Mm-mm. and we can't imagine that freedom without the structure. Yep. How how can we be mm-hmm. better? Who I don't knows? know. We have that's no crazy. idea. We have no idea, and that's what the exploration <laughs> scary. Space. Yeah. But that's where it brings me back to Afrofuturism and Afro-futurism. the idea of completely scorched earth, yeah. Yeah. end of the Anthropocene, begin again. 
what happens. You know, this is definitely a topic that we're going to have to discuss more on another episode, you know, and yeah. I think it would be great if we got like an Afrofuturism writer or uh, expert mm-hmm. to sort of share their journey into the art form, you know, what they notice, insight they gained, and what inspired them to craft their version of the future and their concept of what this world would be. And, you know, I think that'd be mm-hmm. pretty, pretty exciting. Yeah, because I think that would be an extension of this conversation. I'll listen. I'll be listening. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and I would love to just, um, we started this podcast to add our voice and add our perspective and add, just magnify the voices of, uh, you know, people of color. So I would love to have a cache of fine art places where we can go to realize our potential. Mm-hmm. So anybody out there, if you're on Instagram, if you make paper planes, if you knit, if you sculpt, if you twerk, if you write, draw, tag your photos, artwork, mm-hmm. A-R-T-W-E-R-T, E-R-K, yeah. artwork. Um, so we can build a cultural catalog. It's that, uh, you know, Onyx cultural catalog we talked about in the pilot. We've had like three references to that pilot, so y'all go listen to that damn pilot because we didn't do it for nothing, all right? <laughs> um, and one of these days, with your help, you know, maybe we can start a Patreon or something, mm-hmm. uh, we'll rent out some space to display this art so that we can come and we can be on that top floor. And mm. the the point of everything that we do is not to rise up and oppose but to rise up and grow and to mm-hmm. be to get ourselves off that pressed page and to exist in a three-dimensional life. Mm-hmm. That's the yes. point. Um, ain't about nobody else but us. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Davinia. Your perspective has just been invaluable to us. Thank you for having me. And it's please follow awesome. her on Instagram. She is amazing. We'll link to her uh, profile in the um, episode description. Please leave a review on iTunes, subscribe to the show, tell a friend, tell that friend to tell a friend, visit our IG page at The Bleak Outlook, and we'll see you next time. Could I add something? Oh, yes. Um, If you're in the UK or uh, Europe, art, we mean arts. So design, music, everything. Mm. Not just art, because we have a distinction between those things. Okay, okay. All right, so a little bit of granularity to the way that we do things. Thank you so much. All right, everybody, see you next time.